It is Tuesday, the 6th of November, Sydney, Australia time, and you are listening to episode 7. James, we're on to episode number 7. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? We're still, we're still hanging <laughs> still in there. Still surviving. We're still hanging in there. Um, you with Kevin Garber and James Peter. We are real-world entrepreneurs. We are the co-founders of 89M. 89M is the home of Manage Flitter, Check Dog, Tour Cow. One of the reasons that we do struggle to keep to schedule is that um, we're building a startup. And as you know, or as you may not know, or may not want to know, um, startups are very intensive, but... Um, Fun. Anyway, we here we are. It's a Monkey Podcast, episode number seven. We have a fantastic show planned for you. We're going a little bit um, off the tech track today. We're actually going to be talking about stem cells. Um, James, did you know stem cells, the stem cell researchers won the Nobel Prize this year in, um, in one of the medical areas? No, no, I didn't. Uh, you don't, do you know what it was for? Um, we will be finding out about that later where, ah. interestingly, some researchers, which um, how they do this, I have no idea, not my area, but they manage to turn ordinary cells into stem cells. So previously, you know, everyone's heard about the embryonic stem cells and these special cells that can create other cells, but they've actually discovered a way to turn ordinary cells to switch on their capability to turn them into cells that can create other cells. Wow, that must be a uh, that's an interesting uh, achievement. It certainly helps uh, in the uh, the moral debate, I guess. Absolutely, undoubtedly so. So we'll be talking to Professor Martin Perra, who's the program leader of Stem Cells Australia down in Melbourne, an interesting organisation in itself, in that it's government funded and it's uh, some universities involved. So we'll be talking to him about everything stem cells. And I had to, in preparing for that interview, give myself a real crash course because um, biology and human body is is not my area. Although I wish it was, because there's there's fascinating things going on there. We'll also be talking to Carl Esposti, who's the founder of crowdsourcing.org crowdsourcing crowdfunding everyone's heard of 99 designs mechanical turk even kaggle um, there's some laws that have changed in the u.s around crowdsourcing so we'll be talking about that a little bit later so stay tuned um, if you are listening to us which you obviously are um, <laughs> <laughs> you'd hope so <laughs> Unless they're being forced to as a form of torture. <laughs> oh, it's been a long day. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's been. A, you, you never know. I'm not quite sure where these podcasts land up because we don't have all that many people um, contacting us yet. But uh, our stats do show they are listening to it. So thank you for listening. Remember, you can tweet us at Monkey Podcast or you can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. As always, we are talking... Um, Everything tech, everything tech economy related, and we're going to kick off the show um, covering some of the news stories as usual. Some of the news stories this week is that a few days ago, Twitter announced that they are going to be enabling um, photo filters similar to Instagram. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, interesting step forward. In fact, uh, I'm not sure if you saw it, but just uh, about an hour ago, uh, Facebook updated their iOS app and uh, beat Twitter to the punch. They actually just released oh. a whole bunch of photo filters in their own app. So that's interesting because they Facebook owns Instagram. Yeah, well, yeah. So they're kind of competing with themselves now. Interesting. They that's probably cool. they they yeah they might have had that in the pipeline for a while, or they might be interesting in in, in sort of keeping these worlds parallel to see if they can get two bites of the cherry, maybe. 
Well, I think they also released, um, I think it was like uh, something to do with how it was packaging up photos together. So you could take, say, several photos of a scene and then post them all at once to Facebook. Um, and so it's kind of this idea of sort of telling a story uh, in, in that sense. And obviously then using the filters as well to sort of, you know, give it a bit of a personal tweak. Um, I mean, personally, I'm still shocked uh, just how popular Instagram is. And it's still still growing. It's amazing that, um, you know, what looks like just a small thing could, could be so popular. And I think if you're listening to the show and you are a tech entrepreneur, want to be tech entrepreneur, Kevin Systrom, who's the founder, one of the founders of uh, Instagram, he's um, been at a few conferences telling the story of Instagram. And it's a really fascinating story of, of how it grew so quickly and what his inspirations were. But apparently Twitter was was trying to buy Instagram whether that's true or not, I don't know, but but I, I do imagine it is it is a bit of a threat to them. So I'll be interested to see what filters do come out. You're not an Instagram user, are you? I have an Instagram account, but I wouldn't call myself a user. No, I've I I tweeted uh, I Instagrammed, if that's the right the right <laughs> verb, uh, a few times back when it was sort of fairly new. But um, but no, not recently. I've I've never sort of found found the need personally. I've always been a big Twitpic guy, a big Facebook mm. photo guy. So when Instagram came out, it was a bit of a logical extension. So now I just actually Instagram it and link it into my Facebook and my Twitter. Um, so I, I enjoy it. Um, I believe that Instagram today has also started rolling out web profiles to some of its users. Oh, wow. Long time coming. Which is a long time coming. And that, of course, will give people the ability to manage and upload photos via the web um, which will be very useful which is is still been a frustrating exercise do instagram have an official api yet uh yeah yeah they've got a full api yep. they do yep okay i wasn't too sure so that'll be interesting to follow that twitter story see what t- what filters twitter ad um jack dorsey they the founder the creator of twitter um, used to be an Instagram user, and when it got acquired by Facebook, um, he's a, he killed his account. So um, Silicon Valley politics, always interesting to follow. Um, what else do we have in news? Windows 8, since the last podcast, Windows 8 was launched. Hmm. That's, uh, that's a, bit of a bit of a leap forward, I guess, for the Microsoft ecosystem. But, um, yeah, there's been a lot of debate about the, the, the design changes. It's obviously quite a departure from their existing, uh, you know, Windows metaphor, which always sort of had the start button in the bottom left. Um, and they've really kind of taken that and thrown it all out the window. So now you've kind of got that that single tiled screen, um, which was actually first, I think actually sort of had origins in the in the Zune was the first time that UI came As far back as the Zune was the yeah. MP3 player. Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of sort of tiled interface was first appeared um from what i've read recently and yeah they've been being evolving it and working on it um i mean what do you what do you think do you like the ui have you seen much of it you know i have to be honest i have not read anything about windows that i'm 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 not interested in it it doesn't really it doesn't really affect me directly i've heard that the windows phone ui is fantastic yeah, I mean, there's two schools of thought. I mean, some people really rave about the, you know, you know, saying Microsoft is a whole new company and this is a whole new design ethos and they're really sort of, you know, you know, pave, paving a new way forward. Um, and there's certainly an element 
uh, true and that they've definitely gone back to, I guess, what you would call sort of like the strictest sense of design um, in the sense that they've become much more focused on typography, um, the words themselves, spacing of the words. There's a lot less... um, uh, skeuomorphisms, skew, I believe. I don't know how you pronounce it. I've only ever, never said that word before. I've only ever read it. But uh, <laughs> I haven't even read that word. So I'm <laughs> what, what it, to hear what it means is it's basically if you take uh, real world uh, elements in you and you make it part of the design. Right. So say you have like, you know, a leather looking background or, you know, something that has like, you know, you know, like, uh, I guess, uh, like a wallet app and it's actually got things that look like slots for wallets. So basically you're like taking things from the real world and making them look that way in the digital product. And Apple obviously focuses, um, you know, does an awful lot of that. You can see it in all, all of their products and in, to various degrees. Um, but there's a bit of a, a schism, I guess, in the design world. Some people believe it's a good thing, you know, because it makes it much more approachable. A lot of people believe it's a bad thing because um, it it conveys concepts that aren't necessarily there. Like with leather, you, you know, if you touch it, you're not going to get the feeling of leather and it's, it's, you know, an almost unnecessary element. It's kind of relying on something that you shouldn't really need to rely on. So, so yeah, I mean, the Microsoft are definitely doing interesting things and they're, they're kind of, um, you know, taking a whole new approach for the design, which is, you know, refreshing. It's good to see them not just copying what everybody else is doing and sort of, you know, trying to pave a new way forward. And I mean, personally, it's not, you know, I've played around with the, the UI a little bit. Um, I don't think it's as initially appealing as I found a lot of the Apple products. I found them much more approachable when I first jumped into them. But uh, having said that, I, I think once I got used to the interface, I could definitely see it as being, you know, just as good as the, the products I'm currently using. So, I think um, Microsoft hopefully have realized that these days UI is everything, you know, with, with mm. the, the success of so many consumer products trickling down now into the enterprise when people are spending hours on Facebook with a great UI or Twitter with a great UI and then they go into the enterprise and then the, the, they need to narrow the gap because otherwise someone will. Absolutely. And I mean... In many ways, you could almost see every, you know, every version of Windows. I mean, it, it does have, you know, a lot of back-end changes and stability upgrades, but, you know, it's not, that's not the part people see. People see the front-end, the UI, and unless you're being innovative and iterating on that front, you're not going to get anybody to buy on your product. If, people, if they brought out Windows 8 and it looked exactly the same as Windows 7, but just had a few back-end fixes, um, you know, it's not going to be appealing, so... Yeah, they're definitely, definitely, you know, making huge advances in that front. So it'll be interesting to see how it does in sales. It's got a much lower price point than their existing uh, releases. So, yeah. I think they've got so many uh, revenue streams that they can lust lead in very interesting ways. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all being eaten away a little bit, though. They have to be a bit careful. I think a lot of their, you know, quite a lot of their products have, being sort of lost leaders for a while. Mm. I mean, the entertainment products like Xbox, you know. They can't all be lost leaders. They can't all be <laughs> it. But, I mean, their existing products is all have, uh, where they made a lot of their money, my understanding is, is in all of the Office products and in all of the um, OS, so mm. Windows stuff. And, and all uh, the server-based stuff and the mice, uh, MS SQL and things like that, I would imagine. Yeah, I'd imagine that's, that's a part as well. But, um, you know, all that's definitely being eaten away. I don't think it's the... It's no longer the default choice for business. You know, Apple's a strong competitor and so is, so is Linux. You know, it's not, a, it's not a one-horse race anymore, so, you know. What about Azure? Do you know how well Azure is doing? That's their cloud-based product. 
yeah, hosting I've, product? I, I, I never hear of it, so it's probably not a good sign of it. I've heard one developer talk about it and rave about it. Mm. Um, a, a .NET developer. Yeah, if, if you're using Windows products um, and .NET, I'd, I would guess it's probably the best place to go. But um, if you're a sane developer and using any Linux products, <laughs> it's probably not, it's obviously not the best bet. So. <laughs> well, I'd be interested, yeah, if uh, you're using, if you're listening to the show and you're using Windows 8 and you have any feedback. Um, do you know that I was involved, here's a bit of... Um, Trivia, I was involved in the Windows 95 launch in 95. Really? What yeah. did you do? As a student, I, uh, I was engaged by Microsoft to find other students to help out with oh, the launch. Yeah. And Steve Barmer came over to South Africa for the launch. Oh, cool. cool. And um, Windows 95, of, you know, Microsoft was really peaking at that time in a way. It was the first, you, uh, you know, Apple was, was very, very niche and... Um, was it was the internet was was really flapping its wings it was the first time i think windows 95 where sort of uh, you could open more than one browser at the same time and things like that it, it sounds like you know the dinosaur <laughs> age and um i am a dinosaur or relatively speaking to the internet industry so windows 8 if you have any experiences tweet us or email us um what else do we have in news we have um yeah, the top 50 websites in the U.S. Um, I actually be interested to see what they are in Australia, but the top 50 U.S. websites was in September were released um, recently by Comscore, which is a, a metrics company, and for the first time, Pinterest broke the top 50. Ooh, down on number 50. Number 50. They're just squeaking in there now. James, tell me, I mean, you're a smart guy. Why is MySpace number 47? <laughs> wow, it is. Wow, that's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought it would be so high. I mean, I guess it's all the 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 band activity and all of the, um, all the people who still use it for music. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, that just popped out at me. You know, you know MySpace is number 47. Number one, of course... The Google sites, number two, the Microsoft sites. That, of course, includes things like Gmail and then Microsoft and Hotmail or whatever it's called now. Three is Yahoo sites. Four is Facebook. Five is AOL, which that, I mean, obviously mm. still has a massive penetration. Must include, uh, I mean, All the blogs, obviously, yeah. Huffington. Yeah. That must be Huffington, yeah, which is yeah. owned by AOL. So that's Huffington's obviously pushing that one. Yeah. Number six is Amazon, which um, all their different sites. Number seven, Wikimedia. So that's, that's quite interesting because they're mm. obviously a, a, a non-commercial site. Um, Glam Media, which must be some of the blogs. I'm not very familiar with that. I think that might be Gawker and that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. CBS Interactive and 10 is Apple. So those are the top 10. Other interesting ones, let's have a look. Um, LinkedIn squeaking in at 26, just above Twitter. Okay. 27. Yep. 26, LinkedIn, 27, Twitter. Yelp is at 30, which I'm very impressed they made the top 50 sites because mm. in a way they niche. I mean, they reviews, but they made number 30. That's um, And, of course, this is for U.S. only. So that Google traffic. All the, yeah, absolutely. Um, Dictionary.com. Um, actually, we met the guy from Dictionary.com a couple of years ago, didn't we? Yeah, we did, yeah. Um, in, in San Fran. In San Francisco, number 37. Um, Netflix, Tumblr, number 42. Uh, that one's really interesting. James, Tumblr. I, I'm struggling to find someone mm. who's really into Tumblr that can just, you know, go through it solidly with me. 
Yeah, I've got a I've got a family friend. She's been using it for years. Um, I think she's kind of dropped off her usage, but um, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to understand what it is. I, mean, I still don't even really know. I mean, from what I can tell, she kind of posts funny pictures and puts captions under them. So there's an element of that that drives it. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm I yeah I, I don't I don't particularly uh, know what drives its growth and success. Every time I listen to David Karp talk, who's the young founder, and he, his life story is quite interesting as well, super young founder of, of Tumblr, very smart guy, I find it really interesting, the concept and the way he says, you know, it's not about comments and it's taking the comments and putting it at the top and being dominant and reblogging and it's really quirky. But every time I look at a Tumblr blog, I'm like, oh, this looks like so much work just to, you know, just to get my head <laughs> not around Not approachable, it. no. <laughs> yeah, it's not approachable. So... You know, we asked around the office here and even um, our intern who's, who's, you know, young and trendy and fashionable. I'm like, do you use Tumblr? No. Do any of your friends use Tumblr? No. So, but the numbers are huge. And as, and as we can see in number 42, to be in the top 50 is, is, is massive. 27 million uniques in a month is uh, significant. Instagram, of course, number 44. And that one's probably the most interesting because it's, it's, it's driven almost entirely by mobile. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked that it's up there. Um, I mean, because presumably a lot of the mobile traffic would be through the mobile app and their web presence isn't that strong yet. So They must have a way of tracking it. Yeah, maybe they, yeah, maybe they do track the... Yeah, actually, it makes sense. They must, uh, they must track the mobile traffic, I guess, to the Instagram domain. Yeah, they, they, they must track something. So anyway, that's the top 50 US sites. Maybe we'll try dig up. Um, of course, one of the big metric sites um, was actually founded out of Australia. Their name has slipped my mind, out of Melbourne, which is one of the other big metric oh, sites. Yeah. Um, yeah, it started by two young Melbourne guys, did exceptionally well, it's then got acquired. Um, anyway, it will, it, will, it will come. They run all those top 10 Top ten websites in different categories. That company is Hitwise. Yeah, that's Hitwise. It. Yeah. So they, they they do metrics. So um, yeah, we'll look up if if Hitwise um, have some Australian ones. I'd be interested in some of the Australian ones. So anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. We get our podcast out every one or two weeks, and we cover everything relating to the tech economy. Um, I'm going to take a very short break, and after the break, we are going to be talking to Carl Esposti, who's the founder of crowdsourcing.org, and I will be talking with him about everything relating to crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, wisdom of the crowds, etc. So stay tuned. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Thanks for listening. One of the words that pops around every now and then is this word crowdsourcing. I did some research and apparently the first official use of the word was in a Wired article in 2006. But the concept of crowdsourcing actually goes back very far, right back to the Oxford English Dictionary in the 19th century, which apparently um, solicited 
input from the population to send examples of word usages and word definitions on pieces of paper via mail to the Oxford English Dictionary. So the concept goes back quite a bit further. But I thought we'd explore some of these issues. And with me um, from crowdsourcing.org, I have the founder of crowdsourcing.org and crowdsourcing.org um, provides information and insights on the subject of crowdsourcing and application of crowdsourcing models. Um, and I have the founder, Carl Espo Esposti. Did I get it Perfect. right? <laughs> Perfectly pronounced. It's Carl Esposti. Yes, how are you, Kevin? Good. Thank you for joining us from LA, I believe. Uh, yes, sunny Los Angeles. Nice to, nice to be with you. From, from sunny Sydney, uh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Carl, firstly, give us just a, a, a little bit of an overview in a, uh, one, sentence, uh, one sentence or two. Crowdsourcing, um, what is it to the layperson who doesn't understand or has heard of it? Okay, so you gave some interesting examples, uh, you know, referring to how sort of crowds have been engaged sort of historically and, you know, working with crowds and, and getting getting people to, to contribute, to you know, to participate in competitions and things to come up with ideas. So that's not new. Um, when we think of crowdsourcing in today's terms, we're really thinking about it being internet enabled. Uh, you know, with the internet, you can reach lots of people very quickly. You can direct and, and organize their work. So there are, at the highest level, there are three things that you can do with crowdsourcing. So number one, um, there's the whole production element. So you can get you can get workers to perform work, and those work that those tasks can be simple or more complex. That's the first thing. Second thing you can do is you can use crowds to help you solve problems, and they can they can be uh, problems affecting humanity at the one, at one end, or they can be sort of business issues, business problems. And then the third area is is, is using the crowd to uh, create uh, capital formation, and that can be for projects or for enterprises. I find all three areas very, very interesting, and um, they were ringing bells in my head. All three areas: I, you know, mechanical Turk on the on the labor side of things, Kaggle on the idea side of things, yeah. and the, and Kickstarter on the um, the crowdfunding side of things. And if people want to find out a bit more, they can look up those websites, and 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 they have all been around for a little while already. Yeah, we've um, so you mentioned uh, our property crowdsourcing.org. We, we have a, a site directory there. There's over two thousand uh, sites of uh, that are working in those three areas. We also have a research and advisory business as well called Mass Solutions. So we you know we work we work with end user customers, work with big enterprises. Um, but you're right, it's a it's a, you know it's a minefield. There are lots of people that are deploying. You know the applications of uh, of crowds and these different engagement models in in a various uh, uh, array of ways. Um, as you know, I'm a co-founder of a startup, and, and we obviously have the need for various bits and pieces of work. And we've used 99 designs um, on occasion to design our logos. Actually, our three, our four logos of 89N, Managed Flutter, Check Dog, Tourcal, they all came from 99designs. And what I found interesting was in talking to people about 99designs, there were a few people that actually had negative reactions as well that claimed that um, the workers don't get um, you know their fair worth and it's working for free and um, so there's there's a lot of debate around both sides of that issue as well yeah so um, you know the, the different types of models I mean basically you can go and hire workers or you can post work and work can, can uh, workers can find you so typically in those models 
um, you're either paying for the the labor element for how long people spend performing work or you're you're paying on a an output basis so you're paying for the work that's performed um, you know one of the, the the thing you're mentioning with respect to 99 designs is, is more of a sort of a challenge based uh, platform so you know the rules are very very clear um, you know when we do research in into platforms that operate on a competition basis a challenge basis um, a lot of the reason that people uh, crowds participate in those isn't really just for the uh, for the financial reward but clearly as this work is being distributed um, you know there are many countries where uh, the you know the, the the award prize for a logo is is you know is is, is equivalent to a good sort of weeks or or, or even more uh, you know maybe a month's wage so there are definitely people that are earning a living from it but uh, quite often people participate you know, to, to, to benefit from seeing, you know, the latest designs, to get feedback from other people in the community. They use it as a training tool. So it's not just, uh, it's not just around sort of, uh, you know, uh, maximizing income. And, and I think that's, and that's exactly the point. I mean, the, the reason we use 99designs for logos and some, some landing pages and things like that is, is we find it in, incredibly more effective than engaging one designer usually you know i'm sure if you engage a top end design house and you pay tens of thousands of dollars for a logo eventually you're going to get a fantastic result but for a scrappy startup like ourselves we get a huge amount of value out of working and iterating with a group of designers and the results lands up being fantastic so the net value to us which let's face it you know economic activity is about generating value so the net value is is really greater than engaging a, a lower end designer yeah i mean these models are, are sort of uh, quite disruptive you know so there's a you you mentioned a sort of traditional sort of uh, agency type of model and, and obviously um you know one of the examples you mentioned uh, the first reference in 2006 uh, to crowdsourcing which was obviously jeff and jeff howe uh, in his book one of the case studies was iStock photo um, and you know the guys behind iStock Photo started it just simply as a sort of a sharing facility. They then started charging a minimal price. I think it was twenty-five cents in order to be able to sort of upload and distribute uh, pictures. But that business uh, it grew to about fifty million in revenue when Getty Images bought it. So um, you know obviously it was very much a sort of a disruptive model that was changing the sort of stock stock photograph industry. And that's happening across. Uh, many many different areas. You, you you talk about 99 designs. So clearly the whole creative area is being th you know th thrown apart uh, by this. And you know many of those agencies are using uh, crowdsourcing you know to 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 get ideas for for client projects, which they then sort of you know they pick up on and, and take further. So it's it's happening across many different areas. And I think the value for agencies that maybe particularly in the past made money out of you know the grunt work well now they they, they need to just re-engineer themselves to, to to provide strategic slash project management type of activities so there's always a bit of a knee-jerk fear reaction but i think it actually pushes people up the value chain in a way um that's true i mean you look at you know outsourcing over many many years and you know people have problems with uh, sort of globalization of services, moving work offshore to uh, to sort of gain you know le labor labor advantages in terms of lower cost uh, workers, etc. And and you're absolutely right. What it, what it did was it, it you know it, it enabled companies to focus on what their core competencies were. You know they retained responsibility for their uh, product portfolios, for looking after their customers, um, and it you know it enabled them to focus on what they did best while sort of you know fundamentally lowering lowering the cost of operation of their their, their enterprises and making them more efficient. 
The interesting thing is 99designs and Kaggle both have um, strong Australian roots, which I don't know if it's just coincidental. And, you know, Australia does have a socialist bent to it. I don't know if there's maybe something <laughs> there's something in that that trickles through these companies getting founded here. But uh, that is an interesting coincidence. Yes, it is. It is. Um, Kaggle's an interesting one. You, you, you mentioned when I said about the sort of three areas, production, problem solving and capital formation, um, you know, Kaggle is a, a, a pretty good example. Uh, Quirky is another good example. Uh, and there's another platform, a recently new platform called uh, AHA. And what some of these platforms are doing is sort of mixing two models. So they're creating sort of idea generation uh, portals. So they're creating an environment where people can uh, put put ideas forward for product services or for, for you know anything changes to sort of you know policies and businesses and things of that nature. Um, and then uh, unlike previous models that really um, you know presented themselves with a the problem of having lots of great ideas and not really knowing what to do with them, um, they're sort of integrating the funding aspects and they're building communities where they have experts that can provide advice on how to, how to take an idea from uh, concept through to, to, to market and they're also integrating the elements that allow people then to, to, to get behind some of these ideas and fund them and, and, and help them with the manufacture and distribution thing. So there's some pretty interesting models forming. Let's talk about crowdfunding for a moment. I find this particularly interesting as an entrepreneur that's been involved in bootstrap businesses, etc. And I've been following some of the legal changes, etc. And it seems to be a minefield. It seems to have massive potential for being disruptive, but it also seems to have big potential for a real, um, you, you know, mess and oppo an opportunity for um, fraudsters to be opportunistic. Yeah. So, um, you know, crowdfunding, we, we, first of all, we, we break it down into, into, into a number of different models. There's donation-based crowdfunding, very typical of sort of online charities and things that we've seen in the past that have really just, um, you know, been more visible online, integration, in, integrating social media, et cetera, and, and obviously having better tools to present projects and things. So that's sort of a, um, you know, a, a, an evol you know, evolution of that type of model. There are the re reward-based models. Uh, which are very, very popular. You mentioned Kickstarter earlier. Um, Reward-based models uh, require the fundraiser to provide tokens, gratuities, etc., to the people that contribute and various different types of uh, of gifts depending on, on how much people contribute. So you, you, you help fund a film, you get your name in the title, for example. Um, there are debt-based platforms, um, which obviously uh, uh, loan-based. You you pay the principal interest, uh, principal uh, principal back, and then if you pay an interest rate. There are equity-based platforms, and uh, you mentioned they're talking about fraud and things. We'll talk about a little bit more about that in a second. And then there's sort of equity-like models where there's a number of companies that are uh, providing sort of revenue share opportunities. So um, you're right; it's pretty complex. The first thing to understand is uh, there are these different different models. Um, but to the point on fraud, um, you know, the data is showing us that um, people are, are actually valuing their social capital uh, in some instances much higher than their sort of financial uh, or their social credit, higher than their financial credit. So the actual fraud rates reported against these platforms are actually very low. Um, one interesting fact is I think Prosper, um, which is one of the big U.S. debt-based platforms, about half of the people that participate on that platform are actually consolidating uh, debt. Uh, so in the first instance, that was a little disappointing because we thought everybody was borrowing money to start uh, businesses and create jobs. Um, but considering the fact that these people have probably defaulted elsewhere, the default rates for uh, consolidated debt-based loans on, on Prosper are actually uh, much, much less. 
so I think once people go public, you know, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, um, you know, you're expressing your proposition, your request amongst, you know, your social circle, your inner circle, your friends, family, and then your outer circles. Um, you know, it's very transparent. So there isn't a lot of evidence that says so far on the models that have uh, prevailed that there's been big issues associated with, uh, you know, with fraud and uh, people running off with money and not fulfilling against promises. I do like the fact that these platforms have some sort of inherent self-regulating type of mechanisms. That being said, I mean, even on Kickstarter, I funded um, something recently where he was going to offer some services around audio. If he re- And this was about three, four months ago, and he did raise the money, and I haven't heard from him as well. So they, 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 the checks and balances still seem to require some fine-tuning on some of these platforms? Yeah, no, I think there's a long way to go. I mean, Kickstarter recently uh, review, you know, reviewed their, uh, their, their, their processes, their procedures, and, uh, and, and also the, sort of their criteria in terms of what types of projects they would allow. So it, you know, Kickstarter started off as a way of obviously driving funds into uh, the much-needed areas of arts and performing arts. Um, you know, they didn't see themselves as a, sort of a pre-sale uh, product marketplace, um, but, you know, some of the things that they point out is obviously, you know, in, 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 in all types of sort of enterprises, whether they're funded through bank loans or through, uh, you know, angel money or whether they're funded through crowdfunding, um, obviously, you know, um, you know, there are many, many instances where um, timelines, are, you know, deadlines are, are missed, etc. So I, I agree. I think that, you know, on, on one part, you've got sort of the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, there's been a number of good cases where, uh, the crowd has flushed out, you know, dodgy, you know, bad actors, dodgy entrepreneurs. So, so that's the first instance. Um, the second thing is that the the portals um, have a, an obligation and are working harder to provide sort of more uh, diligence around the types of fund makers, uh, the fundraisers, and things that come onto the platform. Um, we run a, a an accreditation program for, for for crowdfunding portals called CAPS, and that's a a way of basically doing an audit on a portal to sort of understand their operational procedures and things of that nature. Um, and you know, when it comes to sort of the equity side, securities-based crowdfunding, um, there's a lot of work that's being done in terms of uh, investor education to make sure people understand what the risks are. There's a lot of tools and education being uh, created around the uh, the entrepreneur, the the fundraiser, in terms of providing transparency relative to their background, their business plan, and the risk issues and things of that nature. So, you know, I think it's very easy to become um, you know, to, to think about the potential downside and to, to lose sight of the fact that in 2011, $1.5 billion uh, was, um, was pledged and distributed through these funding portals, which is a significant uh, uh, amount of money. And obviously, you know, it, it's very, very hard for small businesses and entrepreneurs to raise money. Uh, there's a significant capital gap. Um, and, you know, crowdfunding provides, uh, you know, a real opportunity to be able to um, connect people that want to support particular causes with people that need the fund. So clearly there's uh, a long way to go in terms of establishing the practices and making it safe. But, um, you know, that, that's the opportunity that we have ahead of us. And I think the Internet is excellent at, you know, um, providing, you know, lubrication for markets, for making markets, markets more efficient. And, and I guess this is very much a, a case of that. Um, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the, I believe it's the Jobs Act, which is some of the new laws coming around 
the um, crowdfunding and it says um, under the system a crowdfunder will not have to disclose financial statements until it has more than 1,000 shareholders and traditionally SEC disclosure kicks in at 500 shareholders. Essentially this allows startups to raise up to 50 million in an IPO without having to comply with SEC's full regulatory structure and related fees. Okay, well, that's, yeah. So I'm not I'm not sure what article you're you're referring to there, but there's a there's a, a, a couple of things I don't recognise in that the um, the you know the there's a number of uh, sort of uh, elements. Obviously, the, the the first thing is that there was a set of uh, guidelines, set of rules that were established uh, when the act was passed. I think it was signed on the fifth of April, something of that nature. Then the SEC have a, a window of about I think it's 270 days in order to implement uh, the framework. Um, and that framework will obviously, uh, you know, govern how crowdfunding is going to work. It will set the basis for licensing platforms, and it will it, it will establish and appoint uh, the uh, self-regulatory uh, organisation, which uh, uh, the view is that that's going to be Finra. Um, those rules, when they came out, set certain thresholds for how much people could raise, uh, how much people could invest, and and those limits change depending on uh, what people's net worth or income was. Um, so you know those rules, uh, uh, sort of those uh, those guidelines, those parameters have been established, um, and it's very much up to obviously the platforms in the industry to be able to you know uh, uh, you know wait first of all to see what the framework looks like, and then obviously operate within uh, within those guidelines in order to to try and make sure that the appropriate pr provisions and protections for investors exist. Look, and I think you know people have lost faith somewhat in the um, the listed markets, and sorry, in the public share markets. I think the timing is excellent to to reinvent um, the, the 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 public's op um, options for allocating capital into investments. And I I personally hope um, this you know this becomes. Um, we find a way of, of, of dealing with all these issues and challenges. And I, do, I haven't noticed in Australia much discourse around um, crowdfunding. Do you know if anything's happening in our part of the world in terms of regulations and, and such? Yeah, so I was, so I was going to, I was going to uh, mention, of course, don't forget the JOBS Act is, um, is only applicable to U.S. securities-based crowdfunding. So, um, well, the JOBS Act actually isn't just about that, but there's an exemption, I think it's Title III, that, that pertains to the, to the crowdfunding aspect of it. But securities-based crowdfunding is already um, in place in, in other jurisdictions. So we have you know, many examples of it in the Far East, in Finland, in the U.K., um, in, in Ireland. And uh, to your point earlier, when you were talking about some of the great examples of, uh, of, of enterprises um, that have come out of uh, your, your neck of the woods, um, that one of the most, uh, one of the longest established uh, equity-based funding portals is actually a company called the, uh, I think it's called the America, uh, the uh, Australian Small Offering Board. Uh, it's called ASOB. Um, I've heard of ASOB, yes. Yeah, yeah, and they've been they've been uh, uh, offering securities-based crowdfunding since two thousand and five. Um, I'm just going to try and think off the top of my head of some of the figures. I believe they funded 146 ventures. Um, I think 85 of those ventures are still in operation. If I remember right, it's like 30 to 40 percent of those ventures have actually exited through trade sales. Um, I think about, if I remember, maybe about six, seven percent. Number might be bigger. Have uh, have actually floated on uh, on public stock exchanges. Um, so again, you know, a good example of of how it can work. Um, very little case of fraud in that instance, and and you know, a, a good amount of data over many many years to get to, to 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 be able to establish sort of you know what what the typical sort of behaviours and risks and uh, and patterns are. I think we'd uh, try to get them on the show. Those figures sound pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. 
Carl, anything uh, on the horizon in terms of um, any other trends of, uh, or you know, perhaps interesting areas we're not aware of, such as uh, medical, space exploration, anything that uh, you'd like to share with us? Um, so, um, you know, in the context of, I'm assuming we're still, talk, still talking crowdsourcing and stuff, are we? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. I spent enough time studying crowdsourcing, so I'm a little bit, little bit uh, low on answers to to to, to uh, uh, other fields outside that at the moment. But you know, I mean, there's some pretty pretty interesting stuff going on. I mean, one of my favourite examples. Um, and I was actually due to meet Peter today again, but there's the X Prize Foundation is uh, headed up by a guy called Peter Demandis, and I don't know if you are familiar with this, but uh, Peter and his group are doing some pretty interesting. Things they study exponential technologies, and um, they have a, a, a very, very significant competition-based platform where very large sort of fortune, maybe fifty enterprises, put up any you know anything from ten, twenty, thirty million dollars um, for significant challenges solved by the crowd, and 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 uh, you know it can be anything in terms of space exploration. It can be uh, you know um, you know issues to sort of uh, solve some of humanitarian's issues regarding you know hunger. Um, you know, uh, water, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's some pretty interesting things going on there. Um, so, you know, you mentioned earlier you've got sort of Amazon at one end, and uh, I think you mentioned Kaggle, and you know, so X Prize is, uh, is sort of you know at the one end of the spectrum in terms of sort of the the extent and magnitude of their challenges. Um, and then, as you say, at the other end, you've got you know people working very hard to figure out how you can uh, you can plug people and computer systems to bear, you know uh, uh, together to to uh, to run business processes and run businesses uh, more efficient. And lots of exciting things happening in between. So, I think it's a space that's you know it's emerging. We're we're out of the labs, but we're still. Uh, we're sort of not we're not in a production environment in terms of it being prevalent across all in all industries. But you know whether an entrepreneur is looking to uh, uh, establish you know their business and they're looking for efficient ways to uh, to procure work and to to generate ideas, or whether it's a large enterprise um, that is looking to see how it can improve its business processes and go beyond the advantages delivered through outsourcing or offshoring. Uh, you know the model has uh, a, a you know lot lot of lot of potential over the next few years, which uh, which we're going to uh, you know discover about and deploy. Carl, it's a really interesting area. Hopefully, we can have you on the show uh, in a few months again. I'm sure there'll there'll be developments. Um, I, th I thank you for your time. I've been talking to Carl Esposti from crowdsourcing.org, and crowdsourcing.org is the number one online destination for anything and everything related to crowdsourcing. Thanks for your time, and uh, let's talk again in a few months. Yeah, lovely to speak to you, Kevin. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, um, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, what, what do you think about it? I think it's great. Um, I, I'm quite a big uh, Kickstarter person myself. I've actually funded quite a few projects on Kickstarter, uh, mostly mostly video games, but, um, but it's a very interesting model because it allows people to, you know, do things that the market has a need for they wouldn't otherwise have been able to get funding independently for making markets more efficient something that i'm yeah, really passionate yeah. about yeah yeah that's absolutely what it is um i mean it's obviously still in its early days so i'm sure we'll see some horror stories coming out of it um, 
In fact, I've, I've already read a, read a few of people who have uh, taken their crowd-funded money and basically run off with it, haven't never never to be seen again. But um, you know, I think for every bad egg, there's there's certainly a lot of opportunity there, and there there are you know a lot of success stories coming out of the area. So yeah, I'm a huge uh, proponent of it. The net benefit to society, as you can see, we're really professional studio where the phone rings during the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, the net benefit, though, is, is still, as Carl said, you know, even on the financial side of things, there have been very few reports of fraud and generally Kickstarter has worked out well. I, I paid for something, as I mentioned to him, that uh, I haven't yet received and that was a couple of months ago. So... I think, yeah, the accountability, but I, I guess if you have this self-regulating network similar to eBay where there's feedback and there's transparency and over time, um, you know, communities do find ways of regulating themselves. It makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to know, but you can see it from a uh, from a entrepreneur's perspective if if you know they can bypass the funding stage and get get it directly from their consumers it it makes a huge lot of sense particularly for you know people building upcoming products um you know they're not selling part of their company they're you know basically just uh pre-selling the product getting their money up front in order to be able to actually build it and then and then you know succeeding so yeah it's a fantastic thing i mean and with us when we use 99 designs for logos it's in a way, we're not actually driven by price. We're driven by outputs. You know, we, we get a better result. I think even if we spend five times the money, it's still there is ten times the risk a lot of the time in using a design agency we've never used before. Yeah, absolutely. We've we've found that before. You know, the expensive designers. Um, you know, it, if you get somebody you can trust and who whose style you like, I mean, you, you can get more consistency. Um, I guess, but. Um, you know, there's always going to be cases where individual designers just just don't get the brief, or you know, they they're not going to find something themselves as part of the creative process. You really want uh, as many people looking at the idea as possible, um, and that's definitely something that uh, you know, site site ninety nine designs provide. It's uh, it's a sort of breadth of breadth of ideas, really. Um, so, yeah, that's fantastic. I think, you know, if you're a big corporate and you're rebranding everything, I think on the higher end, you know, I mean, you to use 99designs for that is, you know, you're much better off using a higher end um, design agency with multiple designers and concepts and briefs. But for us as a, as a fast-moving startup where we need a logo here, a logo there, it's, it's, it's certainly much more efficient. One thing that does concern me, though, in the crowd funding side of things is that you know you have you look at the new york stock exchange for instance now there's a massive amount of regulation and checks and balances and systems and insider trading this and that and, and they still struggle to get it right mm. you know so how are you going to have a website that can raise um you know be under the radar up to 50 million dollars mm. they can raise from mom and pops that's as long as they it's not more than 10 percent of the income or whatever the new american law state and, you know, running off with the money or insider trading or all, all sorts of issues. If, if the New York Stock Exchange struggles to get it right, it does worry me a little bit. But, you know, um, as Carl said, you know, it has been working already. And he cited the example of the Australian um, 
you know, a site that's that's been successful, ASOB, which I, I had heard of. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's certainly something interesting to follow. And, and again, if it, if it makes markets more efficient and there's more entrepreneurial activity and it, it brings the, the, the money to the entrepreneurs in a better way, you know, it's, it's Air, Airbnb for, for businesses and entrepreneurs, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um, so an interesting story to um, follow. You're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. Please tweet us at monkey podcast we'd love to hear from you and uh love to know where in the world you are we'll even give a shout out to your twitter account or your website after the break we're going a little bit um left left out of the tech world well at least out of the at least out of our type of tech world into a different type of tech fascinating world of of, of medical tech of stem cells we're going to be talking to professor martin perro who's the program leader of stem cells australia and uh, we're going to find out all about the latest innovation in stem cells so stay with us the it's a monkey podcast is brought to you by manage flitter with manage flitter you can easily find out who isn't following you back find new people to follow track keywords on twitter and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Now, we're usually talking about all things internet-related. When we started the podcast, we said we'll talk about everything relating to the tech economy. Now, the tech economy tends to be centered in our world around the internet, but technology spans very far and wide. And something piqued my interest earlier this month that seems to be really significant. Earlier this month, a Nobel Prize was awarded for physiology to two joint recipients, John Gordon in the UK and Shinya Yamanaiku. I probably got that pronunciation wrong. But they are both researchers in the field of stem cell research. And they have been um, given the description of changing the state of cells. So I thought we would take a little bit of a break from talking about um, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and actually talk more about fundamental technology, some really life-changing disruptive technology. So we are going to talk about stem cells for a little while. Now, stem cells, you might have uh, just heard when uh, George Bush was um, was president and, and, and all the controversy around embryonic stem cells. But stem cells are special for two main reasons. One is that they can divide to make more stem cells. And two, they can actually make other type of cells. So I know very little about this. So I thought we'd invite one of the the leading specialists and the leading researchers in the stem cell um, areas, which happens to be just down the road, so to speak, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, so I'd like to welcome to the show Professor Martin Perra, who is the Chair of Stem Cell Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Professor Perra, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, Stem cells. Um, our audience is, uh, has, has varying knowledge. I understand there's five type of stem cells and the exciting areas tends to happen in, the, in, in two significant types of stem cells. Do you want to just give us a quick snapshot about those two important types? 
Well, I, I think we can broadly uh, break down stem cells into two major categories. One we call pluripotent stem cells, uh, which are either derived from embryos or derived uh, from adult cells uh, by this new process of cell reprogramming, which uh, uh, was the uh, uh, discovery that, that won the Nobel Prize uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the other type of cell are what we call tissue stem cells, sometimes referred to as adult uh, stem cells, uh, which uh, reside in many of the tissues of the body and are important in tissue regeneration and repair, but are, are perhaps more limited in their repertoire. In other words, uh, stem cells uh, uh, exist in the bone marrow that give rise to all the uh, cells in the blood, uh, but pretty much nothing else. And uh, both these types of cells have uh, particular potential and particular roles in future therapy. So, Professor, let's talk a little bit about this um, Nobel Prize. Is it really significant? I mean, to a layperson like me, it seems really significant that a mechanism for um, 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 giving normal cells, um, sort of evolving them, so to speak, into stem cells is quite a significant advancement. It is indeed, and it's, uh, it was an interesting uh, uh, pair of awardees. Uh, Sir John Gurdon, uh, uh, the Englishman who, who shared the prize, uh, uh, made his seminal discovery well, nearly 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, um, and he was the first to show uh, that uh, a, a nucleus of the genetic material from an adult cell in an animal had the capability to be reprogrammed back to the embryonic state, and he did this through cloning frogs. In other words, he took an adult frog cell and transplanted it back into uh, an egg and uh, showed that the genetic material in that adult cell could uh, uh, direct all of the development uh, into a tadpole. Uh, and that, that was a very fundamental discovery because it showed us that... Uh, uh, during development, the genetic material inside your cells does not change. It's how the genetic code is read out. Um, and then uh, some years later, of course, uh, uh, Ian Wilmot uh, and his co-workers showed that you could do that in mammals with Dolly the sheep. Uh, what Shinya Yamanaka, uh, the, the Japanese laureate, showed was that uh, you don't have to go through that complicated process of uh, cloning and making an embryo. Uh, by a simple set of, of biochemical experiments that uh, virtually anyone now can do in the laboratory, uh, you can take an adult cell uh, from a human uh, or an animal and uh, do, by doing a few simple manipulations, set it back to the embryonic state or reprogram it. And that's very exciting because it means now uh, we can take cells from anyone and turn them into cells with all the properties of embryonic stem cells. In other words, an indefinite source of tissues, uh, any type of adult tissue that match that particular patient. Um, so a huge advantage when we think about uh, potential applications in transplantation and having to match uh, tissue types closely to avoid rejection. Has this research trickled down yet into any practical applications, or is it still very early days? Well, I think uh, we're moving very quickly towards, uh, I, I think, a future in which we will see these uh, reprogrammed cells used in clinical trials. Um, already, uh, you know, um, embryonic stem cells were first derived in the human back in 1998, uh, already we are seeing trials of cell therapy products that are made from human embryonic stem cells. Uh, 
there are trials ongoing uh, for macular degeneration, a very common cause of blindness, and, and more on the way. Uh, and there's no reason in principle why we won't see uh, reprogrammed cells or induced pluripotent cells in trials soon as well. Professor, a sort of broader issue, um, why is there not much discourse around these scientific innovations? I mean, I hang out in technology circles around pretty smart people, travel to the, 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 the thinking centers of the world, and no one seems to be talking much about this in the street. They seem to be much more excited about the latest iPhone. It must frustrate you to, uh, to some degree. Well, well, to a degree, uh, you're right. I think there is this, uh, uh, I think there's enormous amount of excitement uh, in the public around the possible potentials of, of stem cells, but I, I, I guess a lot of people see this as a long way off. And, and also, I would say in the investment community, uh, people generally are very wary of this whole field because they see it as a long-term uh, uh, a set of developments that will have to cross a lot of hurdles be, before it becomes a, a profitable enterprise. Uh, but uh, in my lectures now, I say the future is now. Uh, these cells are going into patients now. And uh, although uh, we have a long way to go, uh, I think the prospects are very bright. So it, it may just be a gap between uh, where the science is and, and the public perception. Perhaps the Nobel Prize will help draw some attention to the field. There's a, a famous entrepreneur in uh, the, on the west coast of the States who was one of the PayPal um, founders, and he's using most of his money for space exploration. He's behind SpaceX, the first private space initiative to visit the space station. And I can tell you, if, if, if our business had reached that level of success I, and I had a massive slush fund, this area uh, seems absolutely pivotal, fascinating, and, and, and really life-changing on, on dare be melodramatic here on, on quite an existential type of level. I think you're absolutely right. These are very exciting technologies. I think we are still at a stage where it's uh, difficult to predict uh, uh, the eventual outcome. And, and I think in terms of development of therapies, the, uh, the scientific, uh, clinical, and economic models for uh, cell therapy and assessment of cell therapies and, and clinical translation of cell therapies are, are still being developed, and I, I think they, they present some challenges to our, uh, our uh, uh, conventional paradigms such as uh, the pharmaceutical or even the biotech models. So uh, I think in terms of the investment community, I think uh, the investment community is still getting its head around how you make a business uh, out of these uh, 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 new developments. But uh, no doubt uh, there is great potential there. Um, and uh, it may be that those who uh, get in first uh, are the ones to benefit. I think they also potentially could have been burnt by the promise of the biotech wave that seemed to deliver a little bit less than people had hoped. Um, I, I think it's important to put that in perspective. There are a lot of quite successful biotechnology drugs. Um, but I think with any new set of technologies, there are always uh, uh, often very huge expectations. Um, as scientists, it's, it's our goal to uh, uh, not just get, a pro uh, get across the promise, but also the realities. And certainly in our field, there are a lot of hurdles to cross uh, before we're generating viable treatments, let alone uh, treatments that are uh, economically viable. So uh, 
uh, yes, the, the 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 potential is very exciting, but in many in many respects, we have a long way to go as well. And I would imagine it churns up a massive amount of ethical issues as obviously embryonic stem cells of course do but even along all the other lines um, um, you know what was interesting when I was in the States recently is there's a company that's partially founded by the um, Twitter um, founders called Beyond Meat and and through some type of stem cell I would imagine technology they actually grow meat in the laboratory chicken and beef that doesn't come from dead animals per se and you can actually at one of the whole food stores you can actually get a chicken salad that is chicken that doesn't come from chicken and most people really struggling to get their heads around that um yes i i, I suspect that that sort of application of of uh, uh cell culture technology if you will will uh, suffer some of the uh uh public perception issues that uh, perhaps gene, uh, genetically modified food did as well. Um, I think in our field, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the very onset of this field, uh, we had enormous uh, ethical controversy over, uh, in particular, embryonic stem cells and the use of the human embryon research. I don't think that controversy will ever go away, but it's much less relevant now. Uh, in that we probably have uh, sufficient uh, numbers of embryonic stem cell lines already uh, to conduct uh, uh, research that answers some of the basic questions. And also with this new development of the induced pluripotent stem cells, the reprogramming, uh, uh, we have an alternate source of stem cells that is perhaps less ethically controversial. So I think, I think some of those issues are less relevant to the field, though, though they will never disappear entirely. Professor, tell us a little bit about Stem Cells Australia. I see it's a, it's a multidisciplinary organization that seems to be pr propped up by, by quite a few different research bodies. As, as someone who's based, obviously, in Sydney, Australia, I got quite interested and excited to see some basic um, independent research bodies, which um, I'm not in the industry, so I'm not an expert, but I don't seem to bump into them that much and whenever I see things quoted in the press often it's it's not independent research in the medical area. Uh, well that's right Stem Cells Australia is a national consortium we're funded by the Australian Research Council and uh, uh, our goal is really to tackle some of the basic questions in stem cell biology that we have to uh, address before we can uh, turn discoveries into cures. Uh, and uh, we, we are represented uh, by a range of outstanding uh, institutions across the country, University of Queensland, the Victor Chen Cardiac Research Institute in Sydney, Melbourne University, Monash University, uh, CSIRO Material Science Division, uh, and the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and the Flory Institute. So these are some of the leading uh, research organizations in the country. And it truly is interdisciplinary. So we have great uh, stem cell biologists and uh, uh, developmental biologists, but we also have people who are uh, leading experts in bioinformatics, in material science, and nanotechnology. And I think that's really uh, a big strength of this consortium. Uh, so it's a very exciting uh, group of people to be involved with. We're just getting things off the ground. We just finished our uh, uh, review, our scientific review of our first year, and uh, I, I was uh, fascinated to, to read some of the progress reports and very excited by what's going on. 
Professor, enough young people excited by science these days. Uh, all the research that I read about the young people always kind of comes back with that they want to be rich and wealthy. Are we are we going to run out of scientists? What's the what's the the, the upcoming pool like? Uh, you know, we we have some some very talented science graduates, but I think. Um, uh, there is an issue around uh, uh, the, the, the long-term career prospects. Uh, uh, most of us, uh, through most of our career, have been very much at the mercy of, of government grants and, and government funding, uh, uh, which can uh, ebb and flow. Um, uh, not much in the way of job security. I, I think in the end, uh, to, to enter this profession, uh, I tell young people they have to be obsessive about it. Uh, it has to be something that they're absolutely driven to do by intellectual curiosity. Um, and I think that that is true. Um, we, we do run the risk as uh, uh, the, the whole uh, scientific funding base is, is uh, uh, becoming more fragile, that, that people simply, talented people, will simply uh, uh, turn away from the career altogether. The, the other thing that's, that's very, very important to us uh, uh, generally and needs to be addressed is uh, we need talented young physicians to go into research. And I think um, that is becoming more and more difficult as it becomes a less and less uh, attractive career option uh, uh, for a physician in training. And yet these people are absolutely critical to the future of this field and indeed all of biomedical research. So, so that's, that's a concern to us as well. They're complicated issues, but this is the area where I see that government should intervene. I'm not a big fan of government in intervention, but, but, but these are really important issues where you have scientists like the ones that won the Nobel Prize literally changing, ch changing the progress of humanity and more importantly, affecting the quality of people's lives. I mean, you, you mentioned macular degeneration and, and Alzheimer's and things like that to, to impact people that are suffering from those conditions is really remarkable. I, I, I think the prospects here are, are very exciting. And um, uh, I, I think uh, there, there is enormous potential there. One of the things we have to understand is that it's years and years of basic research uh, with no necessarily no immediate obvious uh, application underpin all of these key discoveries. So, for instance, the Nobel Prize is a great example. Sir John Gurdon, uh, when he made that uh, uh, critical discovery, uh, was not thinking about... Uh, uh, transplanting organs or stem cells or anything of that nature, he was answering a fundamental biological question. What happens to the genome of a cell uh, when it uh, differentiates from being a primitive embryonic cell to an adult tissue? And yet, years on, uh, we see enormous potential application of that research. And so it is really, really important uh, for government to underpin basic research but nowadays, we have to think more and more of a partnership between government, uh, between biotech and pharma, and importantly, be between those two and patient organizations, uh, disease-focused groups, uh, charitable organizations, venture philanthropy. All of these elements have a role nowadays in driving this whole enterprise. And I think we have to think more and more creatively about how we fund science, especially in this country. 
What I found quite inspiring um, is that in the, the Bay Area on the West Coast of, of the States is that both a lot of the entrepreneurs as well as the investment community talk about their hunger to change the world. They, they, they don't always talk about returns on investments and things like that. So there are, there are communities where, where, the, where the drivers aren't necessarily only the financial payoff. Of course, a lot of these people saying that have already had um, huge financial payoffs. So, of course, it is a lot easier. Uh, yeah, but what you what you pinpointed is a very very exciting development. I think is probably more prominent in the states and in that area of the states and this whole area of venture philanthropy. It's sort of a hybrid. Um, uh, these are these are people who are high net worth who have uh, their eyes on uh, social goals uh, uh, in our field. Uh, you know, uh, treating and curing diseases, uh, but also a very practical approach. So in in comparison to more traditional philanthropy, they want a lot of involvement uh, in the research programs. Uh, they want milestone-driven research, and often they want it to coupled to some sort of commercial outcome. And um, I think that's uh, a new force, and I think it's a force that can drive uh, enormous positive change uh, down the track. So we're, we're beginning to see it happen already. Many of these people in California would have been strongly involved in the uh, uh, the state stem cell initiative there, which was a unique experiment uh, in funding uh, mainly uh, translational research in this whole area of regenerative medicine. Do you ever have uh, high net worth ind- individuals reach out to you just being excited what, you do, uh, what you're doing and saying, hey, is there any way we can help you out? I wish it happened more often. <laughs> it does happen occasionally. Right. Um, I think probably there's more of a culture in the United States uh, around that, uh, though there's uh, nothing to inhibit it in happening in Australia. And I think one of the important things to realize is that uh, uh, we all have to accept that the role government can play in, in this field, and particularly in the translational side, in taking a basic discovery from the bench to the bedside is limited. And so we have to look at new ways of, of funding that transition. California has taken a new approach where the state stem cell agency is fostering links between academics and uh, uh, biotechs and uh, even, even charitable groups. So uh, I, I think there's, there's really room for some new thinking and fresh new approaches. And Hopefully, a, a new generation of entrepreneurs will, will uh, participate in this. I think um, the new generation of entrepreneurs, definitely the ones that I hang out with, they definitely very focused on meaning and impact. So hopefully, somewhere along the line, it, it will trickle through. So if anyone's listening and has a big checkbook, um, they can Google you and um, send, send you some, some, uh, some assistance for specific projects. Um, Professor Perra, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Maybe in, in a few months we can catch up around some of the other, other issues. It's a, it's a vast area, but um, I've really enjoyed it, and I, I really appreciate your time in joining us on, on the It's a Monkey podcast. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure, and uh, I do hope to talk to you again and to have uh, more exciting research developments to report to you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Love that stuff. I, I mean, it's it's to me, you know, we work in tech and it's all exciting. But to me, this is this is working with the God particle. Mm. <laughs> it's the it's the start of uh, 
It's the start of being able to uh, build our own uh, biological uh, devices, really. It's that, uh, that whole, whole phase of humanity, which hopefully will come up soon. And yeah, I think it's really the start of it, working with stem cells. It's, uh, it's amazing what potential they have. Did you know about the fact that um, techniques have been developed to develop ordinary cells, evolve them into stem cells? No, I didn't actually know. I didn't know. Okay, so now I find getting a little bit philosophical. There's a little society is a little bit broken somewhere where I would consider ourselves both reasonably well-read guys, and we are across you know news, and we are across you know what's happening in our world. And funnily enough, I organised this interview before I knew that fact. Mm. So you know somehow I've, I'd land up talking about stem cells, my dentist out of all people, and it got me interested. And when I started researching, I thought I saw that. You know, so I'm not sure why we're not talking about these things in society more. And you, you know where this makes a difference? For instance, I've got a, a nephew who's, um, I don't know, he's 11, 12, excuse me for not knowing his exact age, my family, if they are listening. And um, he's a smart little kid. You know, he loves reading books. He's looking up stuff on Wikipedia. Now, if he could get excited by something like this, Mm. you know and instead of celebrity culture and sports culture and all of that, if he could get excited by this this is these are people that are, are, are you know could be solving degenerative diseases that you and i might have in 50 years yeah it's it's really hard to find that uh, that kind of news um i, I used to um embarrassingly I, I embarrassingly i no longer do it but i used to uh, quite regularly read uh, new scientist um, and you know it's fascinating the the amount of uh, the amount of discoveries like every week there was something that was sort of blowing my mind that was in that in that magazine so uh, I used to have a subscription but um, I remember them coming into the office yeah 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 <laughs> so that was fantastic I used to love those um, I really should uh, get another subscription but um, yeah without without really seeking it out um, you just you know that information just doesn't seem to filter through a lot of the the modern channels we have for news. So, yeah, it's a shame. It's a real shame. And it's definitely if I was ever to become, if we were ever to become like Elon Musk and have, you know, hundreds of millions and things to invest in, I, I think it's it's such an amazing area, you know, to be able to to change people's lives and, and let them hear and let them see and prevent all, you know, and, and who knows what else. I mean, I think it's complicated and it's it's a little bit scary, and I think it scares people uh, when I tell people we're going to be immortal in 100 years or maybe even less. They they don't particularly want that. So it is a little bit of a, a brave new world. I just want my uh, my upgraded eyes, you know, infrared, infrared vision, something like that. Oh, that'll be terrific. Being able to see sounds, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Particularly you and I both wear glasses. I think I'd just be happy to... Uh, <laughs> Normal <know>. vision. <laughs> just, yeah. Just to, to, I have this resentment when I meet people and I go, do you have contacts? And they go, no, I have this uh, this eye envy, but um, I shouldn't complain. It's really not a big deal. We also got an email from an author of a book, um, Esmond Frank, who has authored a book, um, the Trade Show Bible. If you Google that, the Trade Show Bible, and he brings up some points. Remember last episode we spoke about LinkedIn, and we both said, um, you, you know, yeah, but you know, it doesn't doesn't totally grab us. Well, well, he emailed uh, he emailed us and he said, well, in the trade show world, and trade shows are a massive part of the enterprise sales world, where people go to trade shows and 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 they find new products and services. 
And he mentioned that in the trade show world, it's really effective. One thing that's very effective is to create LinkedIn groups, which allow interaction and collaboration between like-minded people. <coughs> he also mentioned um, you can organize events similar to Facebook events as well, which I didn't know existed. And the third one, he said you can create hot leads um, and how do you, and he's got an entire chapter on how to use LinkedIn to successfully attract potential customers. So if you're into all of that enterprisey stuff, the trade show Bible, um, you know, I, I can see the value. I think it just so happens we, we don't touch across that world. There's got to be some value in that, uh, what is it, 40 million monthly visitors that they're getting, so... Yeah, look, I mean, 40 million uniques just in the US States, visitors, yeah. you know, so um, um, interesting to see, sorry to bounce back there, you've just, you know, Craigslist is number 20, I'm a fan of Craigslist, and I've, I've tweeted Craig Newmark a couple of times, and I've, I've, I've asked him to come on the show, and he sent a, a really lovely email, which was like, uh, he said, I believe Manage Flitter is doing terrific things, because he was on the awards panel when Manage Flitter was on um, the shorties. Uh, yeah. So he was exposed to Manage Flitter and he said, but I do not do podcast interviews, but who knows, maybe someone who's listening to this is neighbors with him in the Valley and <laughs> one oh, day, the Valley in San Francisco. One day we'll change his mind. I think, I think we'll get him, but yeah, you know, you know, they, I mean, he doesn't actually, um, I think he's only got some shareholding. He's not actually operationally involved. They make a massive amount of money, Craigslist. It's owned by, eBay these days or part eBay or there was oh, really? it used to be or, oh, wow. I didn't know or they sold and there was some connection but um, really interesting anyway I think having time's up it's the 6th of November um, in Australia it's still the 5th in America so election day is still coming up uh, maybe we can uh, let's uh, no, no endorsements from us. <laughs> no, who, who, who do we officially endorse? Uh, come on, people, people, people know who Silicon Valley is. I've got one friend on Facebook who I won't mention who's based in the Valley. She actually used to, I actually won't say anything more because I might expose her, but um, she seems to be a lone voice in the Valley, just pushing for Romney. For Romney, and uh, very, very, very bold and, and, and very brave. She can't. There can't be that many in. Uh, in, in San Francisco. No. But let's let's see what happens. Next week, um, we, we actually got an interesting show coming up. We're going to talk, be talking about the dangers of sitting at your desk for too long. There's some new research that's come out. I'm going to be talking to a researcher that um, has put together some of the research. I'm also going to be hopefully be talking to the head of e-commerce at Neiman Marcus, who's one of the leading retailers in the States. And um, they seem to be doing interesting things in the e-commerce world. So we have an interesting show coming up next week. Still cool. subject to a little bit of confirmation. Um, one of the reasons these podcasts take a while to get together is to find the right people to, to line up. And maybe that's Craig Newmark from Craigslist. One day we'd, I'd like to go live with the show and take calls, but all in good time. So thanks for listening. You've been listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. Tweet us, email us. Until next time, goodbye. See ya.